Imagine how much better the world would be if everyone woke up well-rested every day. That's why I and the team make The Sleepy Bookshelf. Join us in this mission. You can help by supporting the show via our premium feed, which will get you ad-free access to the entire bookshelf and exclusive bonus episodes. If premium isn't for you, that's okay. Recommending your favorite episode to a friend or family member is just as meaningful. Thank you for your support. I hope you sleep well tonight. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and it's so lovely to have you here with me. Tonight, we'll be returning again to Journey to the Center of the Earth. But before that, let's take some time to unwind and relax. Starting with your toes, work your way up your body, squeezing and relaxing your muscles as you go to release any excess tension. Up your legs, your arms, to your hands, and your back and shoulders, all the way up to your head. You should feel much more relaxed now. To clear your mind, let's take some deep breaths. Inhale, collecting any thoughts and concerns from the day. And now exhale, letting them all go. In our last episode, Harry awoke feeling refreshed and ready to continue the journey. Hans had been constructing a raft out of fossilized wood nearby and was almost finished. The next day, they were prepared to set sail across the aptly named Central Sea. They advanced rapidly, much quicker than they had anticipated on a raft. Intrigued as to what lay beneath, Hans threw out a baited fishing line, and within a couple of hours, they had caught a small, seemingly prehistoric species of fish, which was entirely blind. To ensure this wasn't coincidental, they caught more fish, all of which had no eyes at all. At night, Harry dreamed of fantastic, prehistoric beasts, never before seen by human eyes. Giant dinosaurs roaming the nearby underground islands. But could it be a reality? We pick our story back up tonight with the three travelers still sailing across the underground sea in search of land 
and other discoveries. So lie back and listen to the sound of my voice as I turn to the next pages of Journey to the Center of the Earth. Chapter 30 Terrific Saurian Combat Saturday, August 15th The sea still retains its uniform monotony, the same leaden hue, the same eternal glare from above, no indication of land being in sight. The horizon seems to retreat before us more and more as we advance. My head is still dull and heavy from the effects of my extraordinary dream, which I cannot as yet banish from my mind. The professor, who has not dreamed, is however in one of his morose and unaccountable humors spends his time in scanning the horizon at every point of the compass. His telescope is raised every moment to his eyes, and when he finds nothing to give any clue to our whereabouts, he assumes a Napoleonic attitude and walks anxiously. I remarked that my uncle, the professor, had a strong tendency to resume his old, impatient character, and I could not but make a note of this disagreeable circumstance in my journal. I saw that it had required all the influence of my danger and suffering to extract from him one scintillation of human feeling. Now that I was quite recovered, his original nature had conquered and obtained the upper hand. And, after all, what had he to be angry and annoyed about now more than at any other time? Was not the journey being accomplished under the most favorable circumstances? Was not the raft progressing with the most marvelous rapidity? What, then, could be the matter? After one or two preliminary hems, I determined to inquire. You seem uneasy, uncle, said I, when for about the hundredth time he put down his telescope and walked up and down, muttering to himself. No, I'm not uneasy he replied in a dry tone. By no means. Perhaps I should have said impatient, I replied, softening the force of my remark. Enough to make me so, I think, said he. And yet we are advancing at a rate seldom attained by a raft, I remarked. What matters that? asked my uncle. I'm not vexed at the rate we go at, but I am annoyed to find the sea so much vaster than I expected. 
I then recollected that the professor, before our departure, had estimated the length of this subterranean ocean as, at most, about thirty leagues. Now we had travelled at least over thrice that distance without discovering any trace of the distant shore. I began to understand my uncle's anger. We are not going down, said the professor suddenly. We are not progressing with our great discoveries. All this is an utter loss of time. After all, I did not come from home to undertake a party of pleasure. This voyage on a raft over a pond annoys and wearies me. He called this adventurous journey a party of pleasure and this great inland sea a pond. But, argued I, if we have followed the route indicated by the great Sacknusum, we cannot be going far wrong. That is the question, as the great, the immortal Shakespeare has it, said my uncle. Are we following the route indicated by that wondrous sage? Did Sacknusum ever fall in with this great sheet of water? If he did, did he cross it? I begin to fear that the rivulet we adopted for a guide has led us wrong. In any case, we can never regret having come thus far, said I. It is worth the whole journey to have enjoyed this magnificent spectacle. It is something to have seen. I care nothing about seeing, nor about magnificent spectacles the professor replied. I came down into the interior of the earth with an object, and that object I mean to attain. Don't talk to me about admiring scenery or any other sentimental trash. After this, I thought it well to hold my tongue and allow the professor to bite his lips until the blood came without further remark. At six o'clock in the evening, our matter-of-fact guide, Hans, asked for his weekly salary, and receiving his three rix dollars, he put them carefully in his pocket. He was perfectly contented and satisfied. Sunday, August 16th, Nothing new to record. The same weather as before. The wind has a slight tendency to freshen up with signs of an approaching gale. When I awoke, my first observation was in regard to the intensity of the light. I keep on fearing, day after day, that the extraordinary electric phenomenon should become at first obscured and then go wholly out, leaving us in total darkness. Nothing, however, of the kind occurs. The shadow of the raft, 
its mast and sails is clearly distinguished on the surface of the water. This wondrous sea is, after all, infinite in its extent. It must be quite as wide as the Mediterranean, or perhaps even the great Atlantic Ocean. Why, after all, should it not be so? My uncle has, on more than one occasion, tried deep-sea soundings. He tied the cross of one of our heaviest crowbars to the extremity of a cord, which he allowed to run out to the extent of two hundred fathoms. We had the greatest difficulty in hoisting in our novel kind of lead. When the crowbar was finally dragged on board, Hans called my attention to some singular marks upon its surface. The piece of iron looked as if it had been crushed between two very hard substances. I looked at our guide with an inquiring glance. Tooth, said he in Danish, Of course, I was at a loss to understand. I turned round towards my uncle, absorbed in gloomy reflections. I had little wish to disturb him from his reverie. I accordingly turned once more towards Hans. He very quietly and significantly opened his mouth once or twice, as if in the act of biting and in this way made me understand his meaning. Teeth, said I with stupefaction, as I examined the bar of iron with more attention. Yes, there can be no doubt about the matter. The indentations on the bar of iron are the marks of teeth. What jaws must the owner of such molars be possessed of? Have we then come upon a monster of unknown species which still exists within the vast waste of waters? A monster more voracious than a shark, more terrible and bulky than the whale? I am unable to withdraw my eyes from the bar of iron actually half-crushed. Is, then, my dream about to come true, a dread and terrible reality? All day my thoughts were bent upon these speculations, and my imagination scarcely regained a degree of calmness and power of reflection until after a sleep of many hours. Monday, August 17th. I have been trying to realize from memory the particular instincts of those animals of the secondary period, which, succeeding to the mollusca, to the crustacea, and to the fish, preceded the appearance of the race of mammoths. The generation of reptiles then reigned supreme upon the earth. These hideous monsters 
ruled everything in the seas of the secondary period, which form the strata of which the Jura Mountains are composed. Nature had endowed them with perfect organization. What a gigantic structure was theirs. What vast and prodigious strength they possessed. The existing Sarians, which include all such reptiles as lizards, crocodiles and alligators, even the largest and most formidable of their class, are but feeble imitations of their mighty sires, the animals of ages long ago. If there were giants in the days of old, there were also gigantic animals. I shuddered as I evolved from my mind the idea and recollection of these awful monsters. No eye of man had ever seen them in the flesh. They took their walks abroad upon the face of the earth, thousands of ages before man came into existence, and their fossil bones, discovered in the limestone, have allowed us to reconstruct them anatomically and thus to get some faint idea of their colossal formation. I recollect once seeing in the great museum of Hamburg the skeleton of one of these wonderful Sarians. It measured no less than 13 feet from the nose to the tail. Am I then an inhabitant of the earth of the present day, destined to find myself face to face with a representative of this ancient family? I can scarcely believe it possible. I can hardly believe it true. And yet these marks of powerful teeth upon the bar of iron, can there be a doubt from their shape that the bite is the bite of a crocodile. My eyes stare wildly and with terror upon the subterranean sea. Every moment I expect one of these monsters to rise from its vast, cavernous depths. I fancy that the worthy professor in some measure shares my notion if not my fears, for after an attentive examination of the crowbar, he cast his eyes rapidly over the mighty and mysterious ocean. What could possess him to leave the land, I thought, as if the depth of this water was of any importance to us. No doubt he has disturbed some terrible monster in his watery home. Perhaps we may pay dearly. Anxious to be prepared for the worst, I examined our weapons and saw that they were in a fit state for use. My uncle looked on at me and nodded his head approvingly. He too has noticed what we have to fear. Already the uplifting of the waters on the surface indicates that something is in motion below 
the danger approaches. It comes nearer and nearer. It behooves us to be on the watch. Tuesday, August 18th. Evening came at last, the hour when the desire for sleep caused our eyelids to be heavy. Night there is not, properly speaking, in this place. Hans, however, is immovable at the rudder. When he snatches a moment of rest, I really cannot say. I take advantage of his vigilance to take some little repose. But two hours after, I was awakened from a heavy sleep by an awful shock. The raft appeared to have struck upon a sunken rock. It was lifted right out of the water by some wondrous and mysterious power, and then started off twenty fathoms distant. What is it? said my uncle, starting up. Are we shipwrecked, or what? Hans raised his hand and pointed to where, about two hundred yards off, a large black mass was moving up and down. I looked with awe. My worst fears were realized. It is a colossal monster, I said, clasping my hands. Yes, said the agitated professor, and there, yonder, is a huge sea lizard of terrible size and shape. And farther on, behold a prodigious crocodile, said I. Look at his hideous jaws and that row of monstrous teeth, and now he has disappeared. A whale, a whale, said the professor. I can see her enormous fins. See, see how she blows air and water. Two liquid columns rose to a vast height above the level of the sea, into which they fell with a terrific crash, waking up the echoes of that awful place. We stood still, surprised, stupefied, terror-stricken at the sight of this group of fearful marine monsters, more hideous in the reality than in my dream. They were of supernatural dimensions. The very smallest of the whole party could with ease have crushed our raft and ourselves with a single bite. Hans, seizing the rudder which had flown out of his hand, puts it harder weather in order to escape from such dangerous vicinity. But no sooner does he do so than he finds he is flying from Scylla to Charybdis. To leeward is a turtle about forty feet wide, and a serpent quite as long, with an enormous and hideous head peering out from the waters. Look which way we will, it is impossible for us to fly 
the fearful reptiles advanced upon us. They turned and twisted about the raft with awful rapidity. They formed around our devoted vessel a series of concentric circles. I took up my rifle in desperation, but what effect can a rifle ball produce upon the armor scales with which the bodies of these horrid monsters are covered? We remained still and dumb from utter horror. They advance upon us nearer and nearer. Our fate appears certain, fearful, and terrible. On one side, the mighty crocodile, on the other, the great sea serpent. The rest of the fearful crowd of marine prodigies have plunged beneath the briny waves and disappeared. I am about to fire at any risk and try the effect of a shot. Hans, the guide, however, inferred by a sign to check me. The two hideous and ravenous monsters passed within fifty fathoms of the raft and then made a rush at one another, their fury and rage preventing them from seeing us. The combat commenced. We distinctly made out every action of the two hideous monsters. But to my excited imagination, the other animals appeared about to take part in the fierce and deadly struggle. The monster, the whale, the lizard, and the turtle. I distinctly saw them every moment I pointed them out to the Icelander, but he only shook his head. Two, he said. What? Two only does he say? Surely he is mistaken, I said in a tone of wonder. He is quite right, replied my uncle coolly and philosophically examining the terrible jewel with his telescope and speaking as if he were in a lecture room. How can that be? I asked. Yes, it is so, my uncle replied. The first of these hideous monsters has the snout of a porpoise, the head of a lizard, the teeth of a crocodile, and it is in this that he has deceived us. It is the most fearful of all ancient reptiles, the world-renowned Ichthyosaurus, or great fish lizard. And the other? I inquired. The other is a monstrous serpent, said he, concealed under the hard vaulted shell of the turtle, terrible enemy of its fearful rival, the plesiosaurus, or sea crocodile. Hans was quite right. The two monsters only disturbed the surface of the sea. At last, 
have mortal eyes gazed upon two reptiles of the great primitive ocean. I see the flaming red eyes of the ichthyosaurus, each as big or bigger than a man's head. Nature, in its infinite wisdom, had gifted this wondrous marine animal with an optical apparatus of extreme power, capable of resisting the pressure of the heavy layers of water which rolled over him in the depths of the ocean where he usually fed. It has, by some authors, truly been called the whale of the Saurian race, for it is as big and quick in its motions as our king of the seas. This one measures not less than a hundred feet in length, and I can form some idea of its girth when I see him lift his prodigious tail out of the waters. His jaw is of awful size and strength, and according to the best informed naturalists, it does not contain less than a hundred and eighty-two teeth. The other was the mighty Plesiosaurus, a serpent with a cylindrical trunk, with a short, stumpy tail, with fins like a bank of oars in a Roman gallery. Its whole body was covered by a carapace or shell, and its neck, as flexible as that of a swan, rose more than thirty feet above the waves, a tower of animated flesh. These animals attacked one another with inconceivable fury. Such a combat was never seen before by mortal eyes, and to us who did see it, it appeared more like the phantasmagoric creation of a dream than anything else. They raised mountains of water, which dashed in spray over the raft, already tossed to and fro by the waves. Twenty times we seemed on the point of being upset and hurled headlong into the waves. Hideous hisses appeared to shake the gloomy granite roof of that mighty cavern, hisses which carried terror to our hearts. The awful combatants held each other in a tight embrace. I could not make out one from the other. Still, the combat could not last forever, and woe unto us, whichsoever became the victor. One hour, two hours, three hours passed away without any decisive result. The struggle continued with the same deadly tenacity, but without apparent result. The deadly opponents now approached and then drew away from the raft, once or twice we fancied they were about to leave us altogether, but instead of that, 
they came nearer and nearer. We crouched on the raft, ready to fire at them at a moment's notice, poor as the prospect of hurting or terrifying them was. Still, we were determined not to perish without a struggle. Suddenly, the ichthyosaurus and the plesiosaurus disappeared beneath the waves, leaving behind them a maelstrom in the midst of the sea. We were nearly drawn down by the indraft of the water. Several minutes elapsed before anything was seen again. Was this wonderful combat to end in the depths of the ocean? Was the last act of this terrible drama to take place without spectators? It was impossible for us to say. Suddenly, at no great distance from us, an enormous mass rises out of the waters. The head of the great Plesiosaurus, the terrible monster, is now wounded unto death. I can see nothing now of his enormous body. All that could be distinguished was his serpent-like neck, which he twisted and curled in all the agonies of death. Now he struck the waters with it, as if it had been a gigantic whip, and then again wriggled like a worm cut in two. The water was spurted up to a great distance in all directions. A great portion of it swept over our raft and nearly blinded us. But soon the head of the beast approached nearer and nearer. His movements slackened visibly, his contortions almost ceased, and at last, the body of the mighty snake lay an inert, dead mass on the surface of the now calm and placid waters. As for the ichthyosaurus, has he gone down to his mighty cavern under the sea to rest, or will he reappear to destroy us? This question remained unanswered and we had breathing time. Chapter 31 The Sea Monster Wednesday, August 19th Fortunately, the wind, which for the present blows with some violence, has allowed us to escape from the scene of the unparalleled and extraordinary struggle. Hans, with his imperturbable calm, remained at the helm. My uncle, who for a short time had been withdrawn from his absorbing reveries by the novel incidents of this sea fight, fell back again, apparently into a brown study. His eyes were fixed impatiently on the widespread ocean. Our voyage now became monotonous and uniform. Dull as it has become, 
I have no desire to have it broken by any repetition of the perils and adventures of yesterday. Thursday, August 20th. The wind is now north-northeast and blows very irregularly. It has changed to fitful gusts. The temperature is exceedingly high. We are now progressing at an average rate of about 10 miles and a half per hour. About 12 o'clock, a distant sound as if of thunder fell upon our ears. I make note of the fact without even venturing a suggestion as to its cause. It was one continued roar, as of a sea falling over mighty rocks. Far off in the distance, said the professor dogmatically. There is some rock or some island against which the sea, lashed to fury by the wind, is breaking violently. Hans, without saying a word, clambered to the top of the mast, but could make out nothing. The ocean was level in every direction as far as the eye could reach. Three hours passed away without any sign to indicate what might be before us. The sound began to assume that of a mighty cataract. I expressed my opinion on this point strongly to my uncle. He merely shook his head. I, however, am strongly impressed by a conviction that I am not wrong. Are we advancing towards some mighty waterfall which shall cast us into the abyss? Probably this mode of descending into the abyss may be agreeable to the professor, because it would be something like the vertical descent he is eager to make. I entertain a very different opinion. Whatever be the truth, it is certain that not many leagues distant, there must be some very extraordinary phenomenon, for as we advance, the roar becomes something mighty and stupendous. Is it in the water or in the air? I cast hasty glances aloft at the suspended vapors, and I seek to penetrate their mighty depths the vault above is tranquil. The clouds, which are now elevated to the very summit, appear utterly still and motionless, and completely lost in the irradiation of electric light. It is necessary, therefore, to seek the cause of this phenomenon elsewhere. I examine the horizon now perfectly calm, pure, and free from all haze. Its aspect still remains unchanged. But if this awful noise proceeds from a cataract, if this vast interior ocean is precipitated into a lower basin, if these tremendous roars are produced by the noise of falling waters, 
the current would increase in activity, and its increasing swiftness would give me some idea of the extent of the peril with which we are menaced. I consult the current. It simply does not exist. There is no such thing. An empty bottle cast into the water lies to leeward without motion. About four o'clock, Hans rises, clambers up the mast, and reaches the truck itself. From this elevated position, his looks are cast around. They take in a vast circumference of the ocean. At last, his eyes remain fixed. His face expresses no astonishment, but his eyes slightly dilate. He has seen something at last, said my uncle. I think so, I replied. Hans came down, stood beside us, and pointed with his right hand to the south. My uncle seized his telescope and looked at it with great attention for about a minute, which to me appeared an age. I knew not what to think or expect. Yes, yes, my uncle said in a tone of considerable surprise. There it is. What? I asked. A tremendous spurt of water rising out of the waves, he replied. Some other marine monster? I said, already alarmed. Perhaps, he answered. Then let us steer more to the westward, for we know what we have to expect from animals, was my eager reply. Go ahead said my uncle. I turned towards Hans. Hans was at the tiller, steering with his usual imperturbable calm. Nevertheless, if from the distance which separated us from this creature, a distance which must be estimated at not less than a dozen leagues, one could see the column of water spurting from the blowhole of the great animal. His dimensions must be something preternatural. To fly is therefore the course to be suggested by ordinary prudence, but we have not come into this part of the world to be prudent. Such is my uncle's determination. We accordingly continued to advance. The nearer we come, the loftier is the sprouting water. What monster can fill himself with such huge volumes of water and then unceasingly sprout them out in such lofty jets? At eight o'clock in the evening, reckoning as above ground, where there is day and night, we are not more than two leagues from the mighty beast. Its long, black, enormous, mountainous body 
lies on the top of the water like an island. But then, sailors have been said to have gone ashore on sleeping whales, mistaking them for land. Is it illusion, or is it fear? Its length cannot be less than a thousand fathoms. What then is this cetaceous monster of which no Cuvier ever thought? It is quite motionless and presents the appearance of sleep. The sea seems unable to lift him upwards. It is rather the waves which break on his huge and gigantic frame. The water sprout rising to a height of five hundred feet breaks in a spray with a dull, sullen roar. We advance towards this mighty mass. I honestly confess that I was abjectly afraid. I declared that I would go no farther. I threatened in my terror to cut the sheet of the sail. I attacked the professor with considerable acrimony, calling him foolhardy and I know not what. He made no answer. Suddenly, the imperturbable hands once more pointed his finger to the menacing object and spoke a word in Danish. An island, said my uncle. But the water spout, I inquired. Geezer, said Hans. Yes, of course, a geezer replied my uncle, still laughing. A geezer like those common in Iceland. Jets like this are the great wonders of the country. At first, I would not allow that I had been so grossly deceived. What could be more ridiculous than to have taken an island for a marine monster? But kick as one may, one must yield to evidence, and I was finally convinced of my error. It was nothing, after all, but a natural phenomenon. As we approached nearer and nearer, the dimensions of the liquid sheaf of waters became truly grand and stupendous. The island had, at a distance, presented the appearance of an enormous whale whose head rose high above the waters. The Giza, which signifies fury, rose majestically from its summit. Dull detonations are heard every now and then, and the enormous jet, taken as it were with sudden fury, shakes its plume of vapor and bounds into the first layer of the clouds. It is alone. Neither spurts of vapor nor hot springs surround it, and the whole volcanic power of that region is concentrated in one sublime column. The rays of electric light mix with this dazzling sheaf. Every drop 
as it falls, assuming the prismatic colors of the rainbow. Let us go on shore, said the professor after some minutes of silence. It is necessary, however, to take great precaution in order to avoid the weight of falling waters, which would cause the raft to founder in an instant. Hans, however, steers admirably and brings us to the other extremity of the island. I was the first to leap on the rock. My uncle followed while the eider-duck hunter remained still, like a man above any childish sources of astonishment. We were now walking on granite mixed with sandstone. The soil shivered under our feet like the sides of boilers in which overheated steam is forcibly confined. It is burning. We soon came in sight of the little central basin from which rose the geyser. I plunged a thermometer into the water, which ran bubbling from the center, and it marked a heat of 163 degrees. This water, therefore, came from some place where the heat was intense. This was singularly in contradiction with the theories of Professor Hardwick. I could not help telling him my opinion on the subject. Well, said he, and what does this prove against my doctrine? Nothing, replied I dryly, seeing that I was running my head against a foregone conclusion. Nevertheless, I am compelled to confess that until now we have been most remarkably fortunate, and this voyage is being accomplished in most favorable conditions of temperature. But it appears evident, in fact certain, that we shall sooner or later arrive at one of those regions where the central heat will reach its utmost limits and will go far beyond all the possible gradations of thermometers. Visions of Hades believed to be in the center of the earth floated through my imagination. We shall, however, see what we shall see. That is the professor's favorite phrase now. Having christened the volcanic island by the name of his nephew, the leader of the expedition turned away and gave the signal for embarkation. I stood still, however, for some minutes, gazing upon the magnificent Giza. I soon was able to perceive that the upward tendency of the water was irregular. Now it diminished in intensity, and then suddenly it regained new vigor, which I attributed to the variation of the pressure of the accumulated vapors now in its reservoir. At last, we took our departure, going carefully round the projecting 
and rather dangerous rocks of the southern side. Hans had taken advantage of this brief halt to repair the raft. Before we took our final departure from the island, however, I made some observations to calculate the distance we had gone over and put them down in my journal. Since we had left Port Gretchen, we had traveled 270 leagues, more than 800 miles, on this great inland sea. We were, therefore, 620 leagues from Iceland and exactly under England.